0: And our world heard on through 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs.
2: Uh, joining me is uh, an, an author, uh, Rick Carlin, who's written a book called Paper Cuts, My Life in Chicago's Volatile LGBTQ Press. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Rick. Rick.
3: Oh, I'm more than happy to do so.
2: So, Rick, it looks like you have quite the history um, with the uh, Chicago gay life. And uh, um, so um, how did you get involved in in writing for uh, gay life in
3: 1978? Well, um, I sort of fell into it. I am not one of those kids that grew up journaling and wanting to be a writer never entered my mind that that was something i could do um but i was involved in a local group um in chicago uh for gay and lesbian parents people who were gay and lesbian and had children and as you can imagine in the early 1970s that was in mid 1970s that was kind of a rarefied thing there weren't a lot of us out there and we didn't have a lot of understanding in the community um, so I belonged to this organization called the gay and lesbian parents rap group and uh, we would meet every week and the way we would get information out about our meetings is in the old days instead of putting something on the internet they had classified ads in the back of the papers. So Gay Life had classified ads in the back of the paper, and they were free. You just had to send it in on a 3x5 index card with your information or drop it off. And I went past the office every day on my way to work, so I volunteered to drop off the notices of our group meetings. Um, and by doing so every day, every week i got to know the editors they sat right out on in front um offices and there was a, a box where you would drop the card and i would end up talking to the two editors once in a while and they had i put myself through school working as a chef and and line cook and they had had a cooking column in the in the paper And I had mentioned that I enjoyed it and wished it was there more. And they said, well, the guy that wrote it got transferred out of town. And would you be interested in writing it? And I, without thinking, said, yeah, sure, why not? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And that day on the way home from work, sitting on the subway, I started jotting down ideas for columns and went home and pulled out my old typewriter and typed up a column and dropped it off the next week when I dropped off the three by five index card. And I stood there and never occurred to me that they might have something better to do that they wouldn't read it right away. But <laughs> they did and she, uh, Sarah Craig, who was the one editor read it and then she passed it over to Steve Kulakey, the other editor, he read it. And he chuckled a few times and said, yeah, this is good. Deadlines are Monday.
2: Wow. There you go. (laughs) And
3: there you go. So that's kind of how it happened. I wrote a column with some recipes for how to have a picnic and, um, you know, and picnic items because it was 4th of July weekend. And the next column was how to have a party and not be stuck in the kitchen the whole time. And I'd throw in three or four recipes that I knew and had used before. And that was it. And then it led to doing restaurant reviews and cookbook reviews. And then eventually, after I left Gay Life, I moved over to Gay Chicago Magazine and ended up doing more entertainment writing. Uh, The movie Making Love came out. Mm -hmm. And since I had been a gay married man, I was the expert that everyone went to for it in Chicago. Um, I was on like five or six TV shows and things like that. So they asked me to write an article about the movie. And then that sort of parlayed into more feature stories on other things. And I eventually ended up heading up the entertainment section of the magazine
2: wow so now when you first started doing this um you said you were so you were a um a father at that time but i i'm guessing that you had been separated or divorced
3: right i was um i was separated at the time when i started doing this um we ended up divorcing a few years later Um, but I ended up with joint custody of my son, um, which was unusual. And then once he, he got a little bit older, he was too much for my ex-wife to handle. So he became my full-time responsibility.
2: Wow. And so, so that was unusual, I would say, for the 70s to give because Because really, so for the young listeners, they probably don't really get it. But in in the 70s, it, it wasn't a, a popular or considered a good thing to be gay.
3: Oh, no, no. My ex-wife actually um, fought for me not to have any visitation at all for a while. And... I fought tooth and nail. Um, I was not going to let that happen. And so the we had a judge who was somewhat forward thinking for the time and said, "Well, I'm going to have a psychologist interview both parents and see if they're fit." And the psychologist interviewed both of us and my son and said, came back with that Mr. Carlin is one of the most fit parents I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing and um is very devoted to his son and is um a more than adequate parent to and should there's no reason why he should not have visitation rights and um the judge ruled that as long as i did not have overnight guests when he was around which I wouldn't have done anyway. Um, I could I could have him stay with me weekends, and then that with my ex-wife, she just realized how much life, easier life was. So I ended up having him more than that, and then it ended up um, he was with each of us half of the week, and then it ended up that he was with me full time.
2: Hmm. So and and this is also the time that I guess that um, that's really good because a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists still considered it kind of a, a disease or a mental illness. Yes,
3: yes. It it was no longer um, technically a mental illness, but it did it with the parents group. Most most of the parents were having issues with their ex spouses or you know family. Fr- family members who were trying to take the children away because just because they were lesbian and gay it was very very unusual to have kids at that time if you were gay or lesbian
2: wow um so but it didn't it didn't worry you actually going in and starting to write for a gay uh, magazine at the time that didn't that didn't kind of put you on were you a little bit nervous about that
3: Well, I was, I was nervous, a little nervous about it because of my job, which was, I worked as a a play therapist in a children's hospital, Um, but I checked with my boss beforehand, and she was quite liberal, and she said, I don't think you're going to have any issues, but um, actually, I checked with her afterwards, I didn't. I didn't think it through all the way. It's like, oh, my name's going to be in the paper and people might see it and dot, dot, dot. Uh, I I didn't connect A and B that that might be an issue. Uh, Luckily, it proved not to be. It was. We were right at the point where things were changing. I think if I had come out four or five years earlier and this had happened four or five years earlier, it would have been a completely different story. I probably would have lost all visitation rights to my son.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty t- trying uh, at that time. So, what do you think uh, the biggest challenges were at that time in the in the later seventies and even into the early eighties when you were still with Gay Life?
3: Well, um, as far as the greatest challenges, as far as Working in the gay press, or being a gay father, or
2: well, you know, or, we could probably talk to it all, or even the gay community and, and what uh, right. what was the challenges like. It was still pretty hidden. Like you, um, the gay pride's parades had already started, but um, it still wasn't a real. I don't know. Um, right,
3: the, the, the gay pride parades had started. I came out right after Stonewall, the year after, um, so it was a little bit. More open for me, but it was still, you know, kind of problematic being openly gay and having a, you know, working with children. First of all, um, there were issues with that. Um, but Chicago was very early in adopting an equal rights amendment that. I could not be fired just for being gay i could not lose you know i could not lose my job so being naive and and unworldly at the time i thought well i'm fine and uh you know i won't have any issues and i did have a few issues with i later moved into teaching and um i did have a few issues with parents who were upset that you know they they had a Openly gay person as their son's teacher or daughter's teacher. Um, but legally, they couldn't do anything about it. So they could make make a fuss and all that. But in the end, I knew I wasn't going to lose my job. And basically, what they would do is they would just take the kid out of my classroom and put him in someone else's classroom and give me somebody else's kid to take care of. <laughs> um, You know, it was, uh, you know. The schools were overcrowded enough that they weren't, I was just going to have a kid switched around. And really that only happened twice. Only two parents in my entire teaching career that were problematic. One at the beginning and one near the end. Um, And I've either been very lucky or the world is a better place than we think it is, that that happened.
2: Well, you know, it probably helped being in Chicago itself um, at the time. Right, yeah. If
3: I had been in a suburb, it would have been different. And soon after the city adopted its non-discrimination policies, the Chicago Board of Education and the Teachers Union both adopted them. So I was protected fairly early on in my career. I probably had been teaching three years when those when those um, protections had been granted, and you know that's the kind of thing we have to fight for because, given today's changes in the atmosphere in the country, it could easily change back if you don't fight for your rights.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably a real uh, difficult for thing thing for people to to get over, to understand that uh, you know, it, it, I think it's frustrating because we, we we get to a certain level and then you think it's all resolved and done, but then uh, you know, along comes you know, uh, someone like Trump and the whole thing and all of a sudden it's all put at risk again so, you, so uh, we, we may think it's all resolved and we're moving on to new issues, but it's not really is it?
3: No, no But then something happens, like the recent Supreme Court ruling on LGBT uh, job protections, which gives you new hope. Even though it's a conservative court, they voted to keep the job protections, um, to extend the job protections under Title IX to include LGBT teachers. and not just teachers, employees, I should say. And so, even though there's some, you know, pushback, we are we are keeping keeping some of the rights, but we have to remember that they could be taken away at any time if we're not vigilant.
2: Oh, for sure. It's just, it's just, you know, I mean, as good as it is. And as good as uh, how far we've come, it's still kind of—I don't know—if it's it's still kind of weird to think that it took till 2020 and it took a Supreme Court ruling to stop people from being fired from their job for being
3: gay. Right, and they still can if they work for a religious institution. <laughs> So anybody that works for, you know, a parochial school, religious school, any teacher could be fired. Um, church direct, music directors have recently been fired. Um, I think that eventually those cases will end up changing it that it's, you know, if you are employing someone, you don't have the right to do that anymore. Just like, you know, no matter how bigoted you are nowadays, you, you cannot get away with denying someone a job or housing based solely on their, their skin color. They have to come up with some other excuse that they use, which is what happens. Um, so, you know, eventually we you move forward enough that you can't move back all the way but there will always be people that are pushing back. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's unfortunate. But um, so, so now papers were really a big thing in the seventies, and and now there's quite a decline. Um, yes. how, how are gay papers doing nowadays? Are there very many left?
3: Well, they're they're suffering just the way um, the the mainstream publications are. Chicago's biggest. Um, Publication, Windy City Times, is now every other week instead of every week, and it's much smaller. Um, you know, I don't know if many people realize this, but the giant leap forward for for the gay and lesbian press was in the eighties, the early late seventies, early eighties, and that was a combination of two things. One was the advancement of technology to make small presses more financially viable you didn't have to go to the big printing press uh to do your layouts and things like that you could do all that you know on the beginnings of a home computer um so that was part of what changed the lgbt press and the other part that changed the lgbt press and made it much more viable was ronald reagan when he um he decentralized and broke up the phone the phone company's monopolies there were all these new little phone companies which made there were dating lines and phone sex lines and you know astrology lines and all those things Um, those were all financially viable because of the breakup of the AT&T monopoly and Their only overhead, really, other than someone on the phone lines, was advertising. They didn't have to have fancy offices anywhere or anything like that. So they would have a bank of phones. It could even be in their own living room. And they would have all, they would spend all their money on advertising. So there were all these giant full page ads, you know, hot guys waiting, call now. And it was, you know, 17 different phone numbers, but it was all the same company. But they just did a different picture and phone number for everybody's type. And they managed to make a fortune. And a lot of that money went back into um, newspapers, which were able to function then. And the other big thing was classified ads which provided a lot of money for the newspapers, people from housing, dating, um, selling cars, things like that. They would always have these ads in the gay papers and other alternative weeklies. Um, In Chicago, it was called the Chicago Reader. Um, I, I know there were equivalents of that all over the country. And those also helped pay for a lot of writers and newspapers in the, in the 80s. Hmm. Um, and it was kind of a perfect storm of technology, the breakup of the monopolies. And then when the onset of AIDS came in, a lot of people were afraid to go out to bars. They would use the phone lines to meet people. And that was all before the Internet, which now has taken all that away.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, with the Internet now, and um, just the times, uh, when when you look at the the papers of the 70s and 80s and the phone lines, and even the clubs, um, there was a a much tighter sense of community and more of a place that... um, you could go that you were part of you know Um, do, do you feel like a lot of that's missing now or kind of fading away
3: well it is fading away young people and I'm in my late 60s young people nowadays don't feel the need to have to go to gay bars they feel comfortable being anywhere so you know there are still gay bars around and and Young people, I'm sure, still go to them. It's not because when I go, they're not just old people in them. Um, (laughs) And it's it's a double-edged sword. It's what we fought for. We fought for acceptance by the mainstream community, that we could go anywhere and do anything. And gay people, you know, certainly the millennials and younger, feel so comfortable they can be themselves anywhere, and that's what we fought for. You know, they don't know, they don't remember the days when you you not only couldn't be openly gay, but if you were in a bar and you reached over and touched a man's arm, you could be arrested just for something like that. Um, And that there were places where If you were a homosexual, I think in any, they were, it wasn't just for gay people, but there were places where if you had a cocktail, you could not get up to walk from one table to the next. You had to leave the cocktail, walk to the next table, have a waiter bring you the cocktail over. There were all these archaic rules, which no longer exist. And I'm very happy that, you know, people like my nephew's age, grow up and they don't even consider that an issue they don't even think twice about you know being themselves anywhere or doing anything just just relaxing and enjoying themselves in any environment they're in and not having to worry about am I acting too gay you know I don't think there is such a thing anymore
2: Well, it depends. Uh, If you're in Alabama, maybe. I don't know. (laughs)
3: Maybe. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe in Alabama. But even in Alabama, people are getting away with a lot more than they used to. And people of the generation in their teens and 20s now don't really care if someone is gay or not. As long you know, I I really think that even in, you know, the t- term I use is two mules, Iowa, you know, where there's <laughs> nothing there. No one's been there. They've grown up with Will and Grace on TV. They've grown up with being exposed to that. So it's not that foreign to them. Right. And if right. it's not that foreign, it's not that scary.
2: Yeah. So, so, why did you write the book? Like, what what was behind that, and and how did it come to be?
3: Well, I wrote the book because I felt I was very lucky. I fell into a, and this ended up being like almost a full time job. I mean, I look back and I I wonder how I managed to do it. I taught school full time. I man I I ran the I was the entertainment editor for a major city's publication which meant going out four or five nights a week doing all that stuff and I had a, a at that point a teenage son I was raising I don't know how I managed to do it all but I did um, and I met some incredibly interesting people because of that I had some wonderful experiences that never in my lifetime would I have ever had otherwise, and I felt I was privileged to have experienced that and wanted to share it. And I also felt a responsibility to document what it was like from the 70s through the turn of the century into the 2020s for LGBT people. I had I had a a more unusual experience but in many ways my experiences were universal and I I am the last surviving person from Chicago's LGBT press in its heyday. There are two of us left actually. I'm the last surviving man and Tracy Baim is the last surviving Uh, woman and she was just a child when we started I'm I'm about 10 years older than her so um, I felt like I had to write down what happened so that other people who were involved in this their lives are remembered
2: so what do you so what do you hope the reader gets out of this like what do you What do you want the um, young people that read it to uh, walk away with?
3: Well, I hope they get a sense of their history um, that they will understand how they got to where they are. like that all the time people fought for them people died for them people went to prison people lost their jobs so that they could have the freedom they have Mm -hmm. and we had a damn fun time while we were doing it that's the other thing is that there are some funny stories in here things that I can't believe happened um Big people that just were so exciting to know and that's why I, I wrote the book um, to talk, talk about what it was like in the heyday of Chicago's LGBT press and in Chicago it was a very volatile and I use the word volatile LGBT press because Chicago's always been a newspaper town And at one point, there were seven weekly gay publications in Chicago. Seven. Wow. That's more than New York had or L.A. had. And they would battle each other and and fight. And some of them got along and some of them didn't. And there was, to give an example, there was, when gay life started, It was started by Reverend Grant Ford, who saw it as more of a community service. And it was, you know, your typical hippy-dippy paper and things like that, but with a gay angle. At one point, Reverend Ford decided to run for office, so he sold an interest in the paper to a local businessman who also saw the paper as a community service but also now he would be able to advertise his businesses much cheaper because he owned the newspaper. And so he took over the paper. Grant Ford ended up leaving. And then this young upstart comes in and says, I want to learn how to run the paper. I want to I want to learn the business. I want to be in the business with you. So he goes to Chuck Renslow, who was the businessman. I wrote the paper. And his name was... The young guy was Jeff McCourt. So he's going to learn the business. Well, he eventually realizes that the only thing of value is the advertiser's contact list because that's your money. So what he does is he, in the middle of the night, he and the advertising manager and three other employees left. They took all the work with them and left and started their own newspaper. And Chuck Renzo, the publisher of Gay Life, comes in, and there's nobody in the office. Nothing's to be done. He's got a paper that's due out in two weeks or two days, and he doesn't know what to do. So he throws together a four-page newspaper to get something on the street, and he's struggling to get back. Meanwhile, the other paper publishes, and they have like a 45-page issue. So there, there's now two papers. There's Windy City Times, the new paper, Gay Life, the old paper. Eventually, Gay Life goes under. Windy City Times is the publisher of the paper, of the new, big newspaper. I worked for Gay Chicago at that, by that time which was an entertainment guide, so it wasn't really a conflict with the in conflict with the newspaper Jeff McCourt the guy that started the Sea Times very difficult man to get along with people end up walking out on him and doing the exact same thing and starting another paper <laughs> so he brings new people in they end up getting fed up with them too and they went out and started another paper and that's how it kind of worked. And so there were all these personalities where some people hated each other, some people got along well, and it was a very interesting, very exciting place to, wor- to work and to be involved with all these personalities.
2: Do you think the press of these sort of papers or maybe online papers, uh, they're quite different now, aren't they, and, and the way people write?
3: They they are quite different now. Um, first of all, it's very hard to get someone to pay you for your writing, so they get the quality is not as good. I think, right. and because you have people that have no training and they just they'll write for free, and so the people that who have the training and want to be paid don't get their stuff printed as often, and um, it's very hard to find. To find places now that are willing to pay writers um, I'll tell you right now I am writing for a paper in Fort Lauderdale I am writing for the exact same amount that I got paid when I first started writing for gay life way back in the day 50 years later <laughs> per column it's the same amount um, not even taking into account inflation so it's a very different world nowadays. Um, there's a lot of people who are not trained and not qualified. There's very. There's also a lot of people that are not checking their facts, vetting stories. Um, it's much more loose. Sometimes that's for the better. It brings in a different perspective. It brings in um, a wider variety. But it also makes it much harder to trust what you're reading.
2: Yeah, I think there's quite a difference, in, especially in the quality and the uh, trustworthiness. You know, you don't know where it's right. You know where it's coming from or where. Um, so it's kind of strange. Um, so, the title of the book, "Paper Cuts," um, where did you get that from?
3: Well, um, I I saw it as a double double edged title. It refers to the backbiting and cutting and undercutting of people in in Chicago's gay media. Um, also you literally used to cut and paste when you would put together your work. You would actually glue it down cut it out, glue it down. On flats and then send it to a printer so there is that aspect as well and the fact that sometimes some of the things I wrote about were cutting remarks as well so there's all sorts of things of that nature in there
2: (laughs) so so where where do you where do you where do you see um, gay life going in the future
3: Well, I think it's becoming more and more mainstream and I think it will be eventually considered just like any other ethnic group. So, you know, if you grow up Latino, you have a certain heritage, you have certain common experiences. If you, you know, you grow up black, you grow up with those experiences and those are part of your life, but you are also much more part of the general community now than minority groups used to be. It's much less, it, we have a long way to go, but we're much better off than we were 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Um, and I'm seeing that we will, cons- the gay and lesbian community is going to be on that same trajectory where you know we will become more and more homogenized and part of mainstream society
2: so sort of all the memories and and all the things that you were um, talking about back in the seventies and even the eighties what's what's the most memorable event you lived through
3: oh well i would i would have to say um, living through aids was the most impactful in my life. Um, in the book, there is a list of people that I lost and its pages, numerous pages of just a list of names. Um, and that was is probably one of the most defining parts of my life is, Seeing how fragile life could be. Young people tend to think they're invul- vulnerable. We're seeing that now with COVID nineteen.
1: Right.
3: You know, we just see young people are yeah, I'll go out and you know, maybe I'll get sick, blah blah blah. First of all they don't think about infecting elderly people, people with compromised immune systems. You can be a carrier and not know it. That's dangerous. When AIDS was around it was just, it was very much similar thing. There were a lot of people that were not taking precautions because they felt they were invulnerable. Or even if they took precautions after a couple of drinks, you forget those things. Same thing when you see these people out partying now. They may have they may have walked out with a mask in, on their face, but after a drink or two, that mask is either on the floor or in their pocket. And they're going to forget about it. And So we're seeing a similar thing. It was much more immediate and impactful with AIDS at the beginning. You know, young people, again, too, they don't realize that AIDS now is a manageable disease that people live long lives with, HIV. Back then the time between finding out you had it and the time you died was often days they had no they had nothing to to take care of it they had nothing to to ameliorate the the impact it had on your body and you died and we're seeing remnants of that with COVID, but it's again not as I don't I don't want to say significant, but I want to say it's not as immediate danger. You know there are there have been 150 thousand people or 200 thousand I'm not sure what the count is anymore um, that have died from it, but there are people who have survived it, and back when aids first started there were no survivors you got it you died it was a death sentence i had two friends that committed suicide when they found out that they were hiv positive because they knew what was going to happen to them
2: so so that was a that was a, an issue back then so so a lot of men actually would would take their own lives rather than suffer through
3: yes because they you were going to die anyway at that point now the thing that get that was really bad is one of the my friends who ended up taking his life it was right right after right before they discovered the cocktail a uh, mixture of drugs that would enable people to live with hiv so he probably would have lived. He probably would have hung on long enough to live, especially if he got in one of the trials. So it was a life wasted for no reason. Yeah, yeah.
2: And and uh, at the time, political, um, I guess the Reagan era and stuff. They, he wouldn't even talk about it, would he? So that was not really an no.
3: You know, no, no, Reagan didn't even mention AIDS for for years and years and years, um not until Rock, not until Rock Hudson got sick. That was when the mainstream and right wing media and everything saw that it was hitting people everywhere, but because it was you know. Basically, African Americans, drug users, and gays, for the longest time, America didn't care, and that's the most significant thing that I lived through. Um,
2: yeah, and unfortunately, I think I think we're seeing some of that again with the current uh, uh, COVID pandemic going on. That um, because it affects a lot of minorities um, there seems to be less um, I don't know support well, or care you know
3: yeah and it's only going to be when all of these people who have been out partying from Memorial day to to Fourth of July get sick that we will realize what happened. Uh, that, that America will wake up and maybe start working on it. And it's scary because there is nothing they can do for you right now. I mean, they have drugs that they can treat it with, but there's no, nothing to, to make you immune. There's n- no vaccine yet. And again, young people think that they're Im- immune to all that. And that they're immortal, and they're going to be very surprised when it hits. Hmm.
2: It's crazy times, it's crazy times. Um, yes. So, are you going to write some more books on the subject or in the area of of of, of the LGBT?
3: Well, you know, I I have never written anything. Um. Like a memoir before, my husband has been after me. He he, ha- he says, I I renovated a house when while well, all this was going on too, and he said that's a story that needs to be told. Is how you renovated this house on your own because you had no money, you couldn't hire anybody, you taught yourself how to do everything. That's a story that needs to be told. I also think I'd like to tell the story of more about what it was like to be a gay father at the time um, I'm very grateful I have a very good relationship with my son who is now 46 years old and um, a sheriff in in Chicago and i he's one of the things i'm most proud of so I think I might write a story about that, but I am primarily a playwright and novelist and actually when I started Paper Cuts, I started it as a novel because then I could say things about people that I really couldn't say in the book because I could get sued (laughs) Uh, and my husband said to me well you need to make it a memoir so I made it into a memoir and then when I was about after the third draft of the memoir he said you know this would have been a good novel and I wanted to punch him I've never (laughs) wanted to punch my husband before but it's like it was you that told me not to make it a novel (laughs) so um but um so I have I'm working on a play right now and I've been working on it for um, like uh, almost a year and I'm kind of stuck at a point but it's it very much revolves around the Black Lives Matter and how that intersects with the gay and lesbian community. And I started it a year ago, and if I if I could finish it, get it finished, it's very timely, and I could probably get it produced much faster, much easier. But I'm stuck, so I have to work that out.
2: Oh, writer's block. <laughs> uh,
3: but it's. Yeah, it's it's writer it's writer's block. You know what it is when I write, the characters kind of take over and the story goes where it goes. That's been true with all of my novels and as well as my play. And they are not telling me where to go, so I have to figure out what where it goes next from them. Um, that kind of sounds kind of. Crunchy granola, woo y For, for me. <laughs> I mean, I would make fun of people that said that, but that's how it works for me. Um, the not, the characters actually end up writing the work on its own. You you start with characters you create, and then they take over and they take over from the story.
2: But, so how do, how does that work then? So when you when you have these characters and they're um, they're taking part in a story you're you're, you're writing. Um,
1: right.
2: How do they develop them um, on their own? Like, where does that come from? Does that come from influence from people around you or people you run into, people you see? Um, where you know, you, I. Yeah.
3: It's it's not from anybody around me. It really is. For example, in my I, my novel, Showbiz Kids. Which is available on Amazon, as is, paper cuts, um, or directly from my publisher, rattlinggoodyarns.com. Um, but showbiz kids is um, it's the story. It's you know some some writers want to grow up to be the next Faulkner or Joyce Carol Oates. I wanted to grow up to be the next Jacqueline Collins, Jacqueline Suzanne. I wanted to write trash. I really did. <laughs> and so that's what Showbiz Kids is. It's the thinly disguised lives of second-generation stars. People like, and I'm saying like, not not they're not based on, they're like Liza Minnelli, Candice Bergen, Jane Fonda. And um, so I would write the story, and I had a basic idea of where it was going. But every once in a while, one of the characters would take a little side path, and I'd be writing, and it would just start writing itself. It's, it's, I sit at the computer, and I, actually, I channel the characters. And, sometimes at the end of the day, I am surprised at where we've ended up. And then I have to look at the rest of the book and say, now how does this work? And sometimes I change the rest of the book, and sometimes I revise what I've written over that. But it really does become them speak. I hear them in my head. I hear I can see what they're doing. It's. My husband says I go into a trance when I write. I can. I can sit down and write for 14 hours without realizing time has gone by. And sometimes I can sit there and struggle over something for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, to get out a sentence. So that's just how it happens to be for me.
2: So what's your advice for for young writers or people that are getting into writing for a, a paper, magazine, or even doing a book or a play?
3: Well, I would say the first thing is whatever kind of writing you're doing. Read, read, read other people's work. People that you respect, people that, that have success in the field. Because then you'll get a feel for how things should be. And not necessarily that you're going to copy them, but you will emulate them. You will, maybe you'll learn, and if you read well, you'll, you'll start to see patterns in the way things are and foreshadowing and, and definitely take writing classes. I took some in high school, not a lot, just the ones that were required, but the ones that I took, I still, they still work for me every day. I think my high school journalism teacher, like you would not believe she was such an influence on me um, and that's what i would that would be my recommendation to new writers is r- read a lot, read a lot of the kind of writing you want to do then then take classes and write and even if it's bad and nobody takes it, even if it's good and nobody takes it your writing and save everything I'm so so upset that I didn't save a lot of things (laughs) nowadays on computer I have everything saved in the cloud and copies on a, a backup disc but I am missing things that I wrote from before computer times that I'll never be able to recreate or find and I would love to have them Scripts and things like that—they're all—they somehow disappeared. So,
2: kind of like a lot of things in life.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> they get lost. Some they get
3: lost along the way.
2: So now, have you got a website or uh, something there where people can come look you up?
3: You know, I don't have a website. I don't have a, a writing website. Um, you can see my weekly writings at South Florida Gay News or sfgn.com. I, I write a, a, a weekly uh, restaurant and cooking column there, although it has not been weekly since the shutdown because uh, the restaurants are closed. Can't review them if they're not open. Um, <laughs> but I did do some on thing, recipes to cook while you're, you're locked down at Um, and you can read uh, excerpts of Paper Cuts on Amazon.com it's Paper Cuts by Rick Carlin and that's K-A-R-L-I-N and at RattlingGoodYarns.com I am working on another book with my husband and um, hopefully we'll have that out in a year or so Um, he is a entertainment journalist and he's interviewed celebrities for years and he had well over 200 interviews with female singers and and comedians and we're collecting those into a book it's called Dishing with Divas and um, eventually that will be available as well
2: Fantastic! We will have your information up on our website as well, so people that are interested in the book, they can do one click if they're listening and uh, pick up the book. Um, it's been it's been a real pleasure. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you, Rick Carlin. Well,
3: thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: this has been a production of Something with Media. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.